Hello and welcome to Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. I want to start with a quick shout out and thank you to Phil Davis for providing the new theme music for the show. Uh, I think it's really cool and I hope you do too. Um, our guest this week is Mark G.E. Kelly, an associate professor in the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at Western Sydney University. Uh, he is the author of The Political Philosophy of Michel Foucault, a book in 2009, as well as of uh, a more recent book, Biopolitical Imperialism, which came out from Zero Books in 2015. And he is also working on a book called uh, For Foucault, Against Normative Political Theory, which is expected, I think, from SUNY Press in 2018 or thereabouts. So I, uh, I asked Mark uh, onto this show to talk with me because, well, his work has been uh, one of the great formative influences on my own reading of Foucault. Uh, the book in question, the, 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 the uh, 2009 book, was called uh, Political Philosophy of Michel Foucault. And uh, it was kind of a revelation for me. Uh, so many political theorists and political philosophers read Foucault. Uh, I think uh, certainly in IR theory, uh, where I come from, you see a lot of this. They read Foucault as a discourse theorist. Uh, you know, in grad school, when I was reading Foucault and struggling a lot with his essays, essays like Nietzsche, Genealogy and History, I'd see a lot of these references to uh, bodily forces and desire and things like this. And this language just seemed so arcane and, and uh, you know, unrelated to um, a lot of what the field was sort of picking up from Foucault. It, it seemed like Foucault was interested much more than the technical rationalities that many in my field were imputing to him. Uh, Kelly's early work took these passages seriously and used them to open up new conversations about the limits of Foucault's methods. Uh, more recently, Kelly has weighed in uh, on a number of other controversies, including the question of whether Foucault was a neoliberal. And in this interview, and uh, in the interview you're about to hear, we're going to get into that. But uh, I think for most listeners, the interesting stuff will be towards the end, where Kelly talks about his 2015 book, Biopolitical Imperialism, and also briefly addresses the Syrian conflict. Now, I should add that this interview was recorded on Wednesday, April 5th, in the interview, you're going to hear Kelly comment on Donald Trump's pivot earlier that week on Syria. Uh, on April 7th, of course, the United States military launched a cruise missile attack on a Syrian airfield in response to chemical weapons attacks in the Idlib province, alleged to have been carried out by Bashar Assad's Syrian state forces. Now, this is not the place to hash out my own views on these chemical attacks. And I don't want to impute any particular view about them to my guest either. But perhaps I can just offer a brief quote from his 2015 book, uh, which I think is uh, prescient in uh, anticipating uh, some of the debate or lack thereof this week. And I quote, Those who challenge leftists over Israel by making reference to Syria are in effect implying that we should be clamoring for our governments to intervene to help depose the Syrian government. The US and other governments were unabashedly keen to do this, their warmongering derailed by domestic and international opposition. Yet, the scale of death in Syria is already as attributable to outside intervention in the form of funds and materiel and soldiers as it is to a failure to intervene. Calls for intervention cannot be rationally motivated, though interveners sometimes claim them to be, by a desire to save lives, but rather betray a callous disregard for them. Indeed, 
Remarkably, in the last few days, I've seen many people who question the mainstream media representation of these events, more or less castigated as conspiracy theorists and wingnuts. Assad is a monster, claim the critics. How can you defend him? Kelly's book makes for a prescient response. He draws attention to the fact that global liberalism has operationalized ISIS and their affiliates in Syria via funding from the CIA and Saudi Arabia, effectively disempowering whatever democratic potential the Arab Spring may have had for the country way back when. Uh, The U.S. is not guilty of a lack of intervention in Syria, therefore, but rather has intervened already far too much, enabling what Kelly calls an ideology of Sunni extremism to dominate vast swathes of the country. I'll pass over to Mark Kelly in a minute, but if listeners are interested in further information on this developing story, I suggest reading Vijay Prashad's February 1st piece on Alternate, where he examines the serious murkiness of the journalistic sources in the region uh, relied on by most Western mainstream media. I would also recommend the reporting of Ben Norton and Rania Kalik, both of whom should be appearing around about the time I'm recording this on Adam Proctor's new podcast, The Dead Pundit Society, uh, which is so far quite, quite good and worth checking out. Norton writes regularly for Alternet and made a very informative appearance also on the Discourse Collective podcast this weekend. And Kalik, for her part, has done extensive reporting from inside Syria and also had some fascinating commentary this weekend on her own podcast, uh, Unauthorized Disclosure. So now over to Mark Kelly. So Mark, um, I've, I've been someone who's appreciated your work for a very long time, but I um, and I and I can tell you your your book, um, uh, the the political philosophy of Michel Foucault was was a sort of a revelation to me at a certain point in time in my life. But I'm sure that uh, your thinking has changed, developed um, since since that book came out. Um, do you want to just sort of start by telling us a little bit about where where your where your thinking about Foucault was when you wrote that book and. Um, what major changes or may have happened to you since then? Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Th- thanks for uh, uh, what you just said. I appreciate your appreciation of the book. In fact, I mean, I remember you posting on on the the Foucault list, uh, the email <laughs> list, right after you read it, uh, saying you. I think you read it over over Christmas or something mm. uh, many years ago. Anyway, but that was that was one of some of the first feedback I effectively got on that book. So I appreciated it. Wonderful. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, as I as you say, I mean things have moved on for me slightly intellectually since then. I think it's really just a matter of that that book effectively being a point on on a trajectory. I mean, the, that's the easiest way to put it. When I mean that that book, the political philosophy of Michel Foucault, uh, started out as my PhD thesis, as, as many people's first books do. Of course. And, um, of course, it is adapted slightly. Uh, in fact, it was abridged. My thesis was, was quite a bit longer than that book. But um, the, you know, my thesis, when I started off my PhD wanting to write about Foucault and Heidegger. Oh, gosh. And, um, you know, Heidegger really dropped out of it. I mean, in fact, you know, it's not a book about Foucault and Heidegger at all. Mm. But I think that defines some of the the aspects of that book still, even though, you know, I really moved away from the kind of Heideggerian and, and Derridaean positions that I was really running around 2002 when I ran, began the thesis. Mm-hmm. And, and through writing it became quite anti-Derrida in particular. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, there's, there's in fact, there's quite a, there's, but there's a bit of stuff at the beginning where I deal with Derrida and that's, yeah. that's really kind of an artifact of that, that move. Um, but, 
yeah, they, they're in, in the process of writing and I moved away from that position. But there's still these preoccupations which which aren't really Foucault's, which are mine, uh, with philosophy and ontology. And um, that that comes from this this background of trying to trying to square Heideggerian ontology with Foucault. And of course, I realized that Foucault's ontology is not Heideggerian. But I think what I what I failed to appreciate, even by the time I, I finished that book, um, which is really right. 10 years ago now, yeah. I, extent to which Foucault rejected both both ontology and indeed in a certain sense philosophy. I mean, Foucault hangs on to the word philosophy a bit uh, or really returns to it in his late work because for most of his career, he doesn't identify as a philosopher. Mm. Um, and, and you know, I, I come from a philosophical background, right? Like all my degrees are in philosophy. And, and um, so for me to read Foucault as a philosopher was kind of the obvious thing to do. But I've, I've moved away from that now. And I, I, I I would want to be much more cautious about saying that Foucault has an ontology or metaphysics than mm-hmm. I was in that now, and and even about identifying Foucault as a philosopher at all, which I do, you know, completely um, without caveat, really, in that in that book. And, and now that's, I think I'd want to. Have it. That's really interesting because I I mean I I think um, I mean perhaps as a philosopher you'll have a much more developed understanding of what the term ontology means but i mean for me um the revelation of that that book of yours was that it sort of responded to a lot of shall we say more post-structuralist readings of foucault including say judith butler you know but 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 who what you were doing was you, you were sort of responding to a lot of these people by saying look the body matters the the foucault is very much um, someone who's invested in the idea that there is, while there may not be a self, there is a, 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 a there is a, a sense in which there's forces, bodily forces, sub-self forces, as you put it, uh, that we have to take into account when we're thinking about what subjectivity is. And I, I've always sort of thought about that as an argument on your part, saying, "Hey, guys, there's there's a bodily ontology here that we need to reckon with." Yeah, that's so that that that's right, and and the, I think the the way to make that um, most clear is is by referring again to this this Foucault Derrida difference, which is something right. I still kind of am, am writing about. Okay, um, which is to say, I mean, the, the the difference you're really alluding to is a difference between between kind of the materialist Foucault, as I, I read him, versus a kind of idealism of of someone like Derrida. Mm-hmm. And this does get the, the the place where this gets muddiest, and where a lot of people encounter it is is precisely in, in Butler's earlier work. Mm-hmm. That is. You know, Judith Butler, I think a lot of people um, think of her or read her as a kind of conduit for understanding the practical implication of Foucault's thought. And people, I think, often think of Butler as kind of a Foucauldian. But I think Derrida actually is is a more significant influence on on Butler's philosophy. Yeah. And I, I think she's, she's closer to this position that Derrida sketches out, which is really this one in which, um, you know, everything is language, everything is writing. Um, yes. without, without a con- I mean, of course, materiality figures for Derrida, but on the same level as, as language. So there's, there's a kind of, I mean, in Derrida's kind of classic position, he sketches out in of grammatology. There's no, there's, there's no difference between words and things effectively. And what you have in Foucault is something much closer to materialism in mm-hmm. that there's a clear difference between, between words and things. And of course, Foucault wrote a book called Words and Things. It's called The Order of Things in English, but in, in French, it's called Words and Things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, that, 
and that, that distinction is very important. But the, the reason I, I now wouldn't say there's an ontology there is because from Foucault's perspective, as I, I would now read it, and indeed, you know, I, I, this is really actually how I'm reading it in that book, but I haven't quite drawn the conclusion that I huh. would now about ontology, uh, namely that for Foucault, yes, there are there are things, but um, words are so mismatched with them. The encounter between language and reality is so difficult that um, we can't do what would ordinarily be described as an ontology because an, uh, what would ordinarily be called an ontology is an attempt to accurately describe the real world as it is. Uh-huh. And okay, that's a good Foucault, point. Yeah. So for Foucault, it's precisely that that we can't do. I mean, that that's the the underlying insight. I mean, it's right in the introduction of the order of things. It's like, well, you know, this is, this is why um, we kind of can't have one truth uh, which stands for all time. It's because you know every framework of knowledge that we try to articulate, while it has some relation to extra linguistic reality, never properly grasps it, and consequently, um, we're always kind of floundering around. Mm-hmm. In that book, you um, you're really interested in um, subjection. I mean, it's 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 a it's also I'll get to subjectivation in a minute because I think that's a, a, a also a major. Uh, argument in that in that book of yours but the um just to sort of stay with subjection itself something i've often struggled with and and it's sort of a um a question i've always wanted to ask a real foucault expert right so that, that's you in this instance <laughs> um uh you know is is to sort of reflect maybe on how subjection might be conceived of as a method for thinking about power relations today, right? So we've talked a little bit about the body. We've talked about the body in a sense, uh, uh, the, the sort of Butlerian interpretation, which is a very confessional approach to understanding power. But in Foucault, there is also a sense in which the body itself can be trained through discipline. And um, I'm just wondering, you know, you say disciplinary power is not about subjectivity, but about something called a soul. And can I just quickly ask you to elaborate on, on what the two terms mean for you, maybe then when you're writing the book or now today, if those terms have evolved for you? The, the two terms here being subjection and subjectivation? Uh, no, the, the soul and the subject. Sorry. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, look, this, this honestly is not something I've, I've thought much about in, in, in recent years or problematized. Yeah. The, yeah. The, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear, though, I think. I mean, the, the soul – is uh, it's a it's a quite eccentric term that Foucault uses in in Discipline and Punish. So he yeah. he comes up with this formulation in in Discipline and Punish that the what discipline does is create the soul as a as a reality. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's an odd it's an odd way to talk. I think. I mean, I, I I don't. Although it's true that there's a kind of focus. This word soul is thrown around, or am in French is thrown around mm. uh, by you know, early kind of disciplinary thinkers in the late 18th century. And of course, discipline does come out of this kind of quasi-religious um, framework, like the, you know, the Quakers, for example, inventing uh, sure. you know, various, various institutional frameworks. It, it's, it's not, you know, in many ways, it's a, it's a very odd term to use because really discipline is, is, is not as concerned with the soul as say, you know, power was in the middle ages or something like that. Mm. Uh, so, the, but the, the the claim the claim that Foucault makes though is that disciplinary power actually produces the soul as a real thing. 
and, and that's of course what's so interesting. I mean, sub- subjection. I think here is is um, let's say the more general category in which this notion of the soul appears. So yes, definitely. Subjection, subjection for Foucault is is the 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 general thing that is um, characteristic of disciplinary power. And it is, I mean, the phrase I like from Foucault is this, this phrase he puts in, in the first volume of the history of sexuality, that subjection is the constitution of subjects in both senses of the word. That is a uh, subject to, as well as subject of. Uh, yeah. So, and that, that, and that is the peculiarity of disciplinary power for Foucault. On the one hand, it um, makes you subject to power, but that's not unique because, of course, you know, through the whole span of the Middle Ages, human beings, uh, with the exception of, of monarchs, were understood as subjects. That is, they were subjects of the king, and that was the essential category uh, in in kind of medieval power uh, or even early modern power. But this this is radically transformed with the notion that we are subjects in the sense of being authors of our own fate as individuals. Yeah. And, but the, 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 the characteristic of disciplinary power is that it has both sides of that. On the one hand, we're encouraged to see ourselves as, um, responsible authors of our own fate as well as being subjected to considerable, uh, forces, which precisely constitute our understanding of ourselves as sovereign. Um, so the, the, the soul, not, not to sort of linger on it, but the, the soul for you is um, perhaps a, not, not a term that we should um, sort of lose too much sleep over specifying um, in relation to, to a sort of a, maybe a separate role that it's, that discipline is playing relative to other types of subjection, other types of uh, ways of, sub, of, of engaging in subjection. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think I, I would tend to forget about that term, the soul. I mean, it really mm-hmm. it's fairly marginal in Foucault's usage yeah. of discipline. It's something he kind of he comes up with, uh, but I, I think it's it's probably it probably more apt to confuse than anything. Cool. So in that case, then um, I suppose that the 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 the, the, the follow on question for me from that uh, would be to ask you about a, a term that does seem to be very important for you in that book, um, which is subjectivation. And uh, you sort of set it up that if subjection is about the auto formation of the subject, say, according to exogenously given rules, or uh, be these the, the rules of the Christian confessional, or maybe even the rules of capitalism, subjectivation is something different. It's a It's an older mode. But also, it seems to you, I think, um, that that Foucault feels this more political potential in subjectivation. Um, and so, while Foucault famously didn't have a theory of liberation per se, uh, you do seem to be arguing that Foucault was inspired by the um, the autonomy or the the degrees of a uh, sort of relative autonomy, at least that the the Greeks, say, for example, would have um, uh, understood as as being part of the way we engage in the creation of ourselves. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just to clarify here, this, this term subjectivation, I mean, if I'm saying that, that subjection is the more general category that this idea of the constitution of the soul should be couched within subject, subjectivation is the most general category. Okay. So subjection really is something like the, the modern modality of subjectivation. Right. Which is, which is of course a confessional, um, yeah, well, this, yeah, con- confession is is one aspect of that, and mm-hmm. but um, yeah, 
the the idea yeah the idea that we are that there there are you know apparatuses institutions which mm-hmm. which guide the way we constitute ourselves but for Foucault all subjects all subjects are essentially self constituting right that there's and there's in the end it's work we do on ourselves that produces our subjectivity mm. um, that of course that's paradoxical because it seems to imply that we are um, self-causing, right? That, that uh, you know, there's this question of, of um, where where we come from to do to do the the creation of the subject. But then the idea here is something like there's something like a self which is even more basic than the subject, uh, which brings subjectivity into existence. Yes, yes. But and you're absolutely right to say. I mean, what what Foucault finds in ancient Greece is a form of subjectivation which is radically different to the form we have today, namely subjection. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right to say that Foucault places a certain amount of hope in this, not in a direct return, as and Foucault's often misunderstood or misread as arguing that we need to go back to um, something closely resembling the Greek care of the self. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case but he certainly does see in the idea that we can have radically different forms of subjectivation the hope for for doing things differently so so okay you've sort of already in the conversation said you know that you've you've approached this uh and your your intellectual formation largely as a philosopher um you've resurfaced recently on my radar um, as someone who's been interested in contemporary conversations about Foucault. Um, and also uh, there's your new book, which we can talk about um, later on. But um, one of the recent controversies, of course, is what Foucault's views were on capitalism. And some people like Philip Murawski um, have seen in Foucault uh, a kind of an anti-Marxist uh, position um, it claims that um, you know there's, there's no way that um, if you were ever going to try to take on a Foucauldian analysis of contemporary political economy, whatever that might mean, that you could use Marxist concepts to do that. They're just incompatible. Um, and for their part, a number of Marxist scholars uh, seem to be convinced that Foucault was somehow secretly a neoliberal. Um, last year, you had a post on Contrivers Review where you responded to some of these claims. Um, were you as upset as I was, <laughs> that people were claiming Foucault was a, new, a neoliberal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely and continuingly incensed about it. I must say, good. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, the, but the problem for me, I mean, it, this this is a claim I've been hearing for years. I mean, it, it, yes, uh, the, the first time I encountered it would have been in 2004 mm-hmm. um, with with. Er- er- Eric Paris, who who was delivering material from a book that became his book Foucault Two Point which I think is probably the the first thing really in print to claim that. This, right, I have it actually. Um, yeah. Stuff has been yeah. Well, you know, you, you shouldn't look at that book. I mean, yeah, or I don't advise anyone to read any of this stuff. Yeah. Um, because it it's it's you know meretricious at best. Mm. And but this 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 gesture has been repeated again and again. Um, there's. A number of people in my locality, Australia, running this line, so I frequently encounter papers that make at least light versions of this accusation. Um, I'm actually dealing – I've got a chapter in a, in a book of mine that's forthcoming, uh, I guess, in January of next year, which will uh, deal with this mm. uh, to, in, in detail. But, yeah, I mean, 
this this keeps rearing its head, and it, the source of all these assignations are always this lecture series from the College de France the, from seventy eight seventy nine. Sure, uh, the birth of biopolitics. Um, and yeah, it's wrong. I don't know what else to say. Well, it's 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 wrong, but also it's it's. I think as you were saying, it's it's it seems to be one of these things that people believe if you repeat it enough, it's true. Um, and a lot of it seems to be um, based on a on a way of reading Birth of Biopolitics, especially. Um, um, and the problem there, and I think you point this out in, in your blog post on Contrivers Review, that um, it, it, you know, there's a you could read the book because the book is written in such a sort of a flat descriptive manner. It doesn't seem to have a political stake in what it's saying. So I think like Murawski, especially, you know, seems to read some of the descriptions of neoliberalism in the book as as endorsements. And I'm just like, have you read any other Foucault? Because this ain't <laughs> this is not, um, you know, this is not um, in good faith, you know, to you, you really do. And I think you sort of take this on. Um that uh, you, 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 you know you'd have to sort of to claim Foucault is a neoliberal, you'd have to basically disavow everything else he's ever said about how power works. That's right, and 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 the evidence isn't there in that book. Although, mm. I mean, you do the, that question you just asked, which I take it's this kind of rhetorical question: Have you ever read anything else by Foucault? Mm-hmm. I think does does indicate a particular problem here. I don't know if this is the case of Morawski because I don't really know him well mm-hmm. enough to know if he's read any mm-hmm. other Foucault. But there definitely are people now. I have encountered at least one kind of graduate student who literally the only thing they've ever read by Foucault is the birth of biopolitics, which is yeah a travesty, right? Because it, and, and of course, they had the reaction like, you know, what what the hell is this? This, this guy is very interesting. Yeah. And of course, this is not what what you're supposed to read, if you like. I mean, Foucault himself did not try to publish this material. Indeed, he basically tried to suppress Gosh. it. Yeah. Because it, it's just, I mean, that all the College de France lectures, they're, they're just work in progress reports that he was required to give. Mm-hmm. I mean, can't the idea that that you know someone would you know produce lectures you gave yeah at terrifying and say well, this is what you really think yeah yeah oh it's, gosh I mean, of course it's not even the case that it's not what he really thinks it's just not very revealing right it's yeah. just like okay he's been reading these neoliberal texts he tells you about them that, that's yeah. all you get in the birth of biopolitics mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of interesting but the idea that it's become this it's, I think, the second most widely cited of all Foucault's College de France lectures now. That I did it's, not know. That I did yeah, not know. It's 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 become a really big a big deal, and and that is it's crazy. And you know, I mean, my slightly paranoid belief about this is it's become widely cited because it allows people to do with Foucault things that his work won't normally allow them to do. Yeah. And I mean, I think I, I don't know if I say this in the Contrivers article, but um, you know. I take it there's really two different directions that people are, are doing this from. One is that there are readers of Foucault who are, you know, on the neoliberal left, let's say, right? They're, sure. they're, because, of course, these days, you know, the, the, the mainstream of political opinion on the left, uh, mainstream members of, of what might be described as center-left political parties like the Democrats in, in the U.S. or the Labour Party here yeah. um, 
of a neoliberal bent. And those kind of older, comfortable academics, I think, um, have become neoliberal and want to take Foucault along with their with their neoliberal turn. And I mean, the best example of this, of course, is, is Foucault's own assistant, who has uh, been, you know, of course, neoliberal for years, François Ewald. Mm. And uh, the uh, on the other hand, of course, there's Marxists who've never liked Foucault. Certain kind, a certain kind of Marxist has never liked Foucault. And and this this we can trace back to Foucault's reception from the 1960s onwards that there've always been a lot of Marxists who had it in for Foucault because. You know, Foucault's, Foucault's work, although some Marxists do embrace it, is clearly not, strictly speaking, Marxist mm. and offers some kind of alternative view. And uh, that, that, I take it, is why you end up with, you know, if you Google Foucault, the fifth hit you get or whatever, like one of the top hits is this Jacobin interview with Zamora, this uh, Belgian graduate student who is not an expert in Foucault by any, any means, who has put out this edited collection mm. in which he – runs this line that Foucault is a neoliberal based on, on, you know, a hodgepodge of, of kind of half, half truths. Yeah. I've seen it come up in, in various, um, articles I've been sent to review over the years. And, um, it's, it, it it's, it's just, um, interestingly how, how, how it's interesting how that is sort of taken as gospel and, and, uh, you know, well, once, once, once you can cite a few authorities on it, you know, you're, you're set up, right. It, it, you know, it doesn't need to be assessed any further. It's just true. Yeah. That, that's how, well, that's, I guess that's how academic discourse works, which is, is frightening. Yeah. Tell me about it. Speaking of frightening, let's talk about your new book. Um, I'm just kidding, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you, you know, you, you, you seem to be sort of moving into a, um, a, a certain taking on of a, of a, of a, of a, of a debate or an edifice um, that is, is concerns itself with whether Foucauldian concepts, methods, tools can be applied globally. Um, and um, I guess I just sort of want to preface all of this by, by asking you, I suppose, what is a very big question, which is, is there any point or any sense today in which you care to speak of a global mode of subjection? That's an interesting question, Nick. I mean, and here, of course, I'm I'm trespassing in your territory, right? <laughs> I, um, I mean, it's you know that the, the book the book the book you're asking about, I take it, is biopolitical imperialism. Yes, it is. It came out a couple of years now, and um, is it's, you know kind of. Uh, it's kind of an impertinent thing for me to write, really, because it, it's it's straying into the, the territory of international relations or international political economy, which I don't have very much much background in, really. Mm. But uh, in any case, um, with with that caveat to try and cover myself against against criticisms you might you might have, um, this this question of whether there's a global form of subjection, well. I mean that uh, the, my my quick answer is yes, but that's because of the fact that the discipline as a technology of power, as Foucault, I mean, this is, I always like to insist, you know, biopolitics and discipline, Foucault defines them as, them as technologies of power. Yeah. The thing about technologies is they're, they're you know, transferable. Um, sure. So, you know, another country can adopt a technology without any, you know, they don't even, they don't need to even import machine tools, you know, they, they, they can just copy it. And um, this discipline 
and biopolitics, clearly both of them, have been globalized as technologies, uh, just just as the, the kind of nation state form, say, has been. And of course, part of this, this um, globalization was, you know, carried out at the point of a gun um, with, you know, th- these these forms have been imposed all, all around the world by colonial powers. But even in the spaces where they haven't, they've been adopted. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you could even sort of extend that again and talk about how some of the shall we say, tools developed specifically for disciplining the third world are maybe now being re-imported uh, back to the Western world again. Um, that's, that's right. I mean, that's, that's happened again and again, actually. I mean, yeah. you can find instances of that in the 19th century, and you can, I think, find instances of that now. I mean, this kind of neocolonial era we're in, particularly in the United States, where <laughs> now that the United States seems to be involved in, in permanent war, um, that mm. it, it it has troops going overseas and 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 doing things which which uh, and then are reimported into the into the United States both in the form of tactics and and indeed the forms of personnel and expertise. I mean, you have this this um, transition of people from the military into um, civilian organizations like the, the police force and, and prison system. This this this. Uh... This this book is a is 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 in part I think uh, for you motivated by a frustration about the way the word biopolitics gets taken up um, in in such different ways and and you spend some time talking about different sort of theorists who some of whom would be international relations theorists others whose claim to be part of that discipline might be more uh, tenuous but um, nevertheless um, y- you I think because. You know, I think you, you, you've got, got a sense that this term is, is, is connected to the politics of subjection. Um, you make a move that, that sort of places this term as more applicable in, in a Western experience, while something called biopolitical imperialism, which of course is the, the title of the book, is applicable elsewhere, and specifically to the poorer parts of the world. Um, so, so what is biopolitical imperialism in terms of its experience for these poorest parts of the world? Yeah. So the the claim the claim I make in the book about about this biopolitical imperialism is that the the functioning biopolitics of first world countries, like I like this old old three worlds theory yeah. vocabulary. Very unfashionable now, but so I, I talk about the first world and the third world primarily in that book. So the the biopolitics of the first world, um, I take it, it, you know, exists at the expense of the formation of biopolitics in the third world. It's not quite as stark as that there is no biopolitics in the third world. Most third world countries, with the obvious exceptions of certain kind of failed states, of course, yeah. most most third world countries have some form of what we might call biopolitics. Mm. And here I have to address this terminological thing by saying, mm. you know, for the listeners, what I mean by biopolitics after Foucault, biopolitics is the technology of power which constitutes a population through uh, (laughs) – that's my alarm going off. Uh, Biopolitics constitutes a population through the state caring for that population. Yes. So 
a state which goes out and, as Foucault puts it, makes people live, uses techniques that actually make them healthy, make them breed, make them live longer as a form of, of power. And that, I think, happens in pretty much every state in the world to some extent. But of course, you know, of course, there's many differences between the first world and the third world. And the principal one for me is income disparity. I mean, here, you know, I have to, I'm very clear about this in the book, that mm. I kind of um, bow to Marxist theories of imperialism, that really the, the primary form of imperialism is economic. Yeah. But nonetheless, that there's this biopolitical dimension as well, which is what I'm trying to, trying to um, bring out in the book. And it's, it, although, of course, the mo most obvious thing about third world countries is they're just much poorer. They also have much weaker forms of biopolitics. That is, if you live in you know, sub-Saharan African country, your the healthcare is going to be terrible. And my claim in the in the book is that this hasn't happened just just somehow by accident or you yeah. know by by the fact that these countries are simply less developed, but rather through a pattern of what I would call in Foucaultian terms a, a strategy of power relations called imperialism, uh, by which the way that the imperialist powers, uh, first world countries, operate around the world has led to this um, lack of development. One thing that comes up in the book quite a bit, I think, is the question of race and racism. Um, And, uh, you know, there's been uh, some discussion of that in the United States, of course, in the wake of the recent election of Donald Trump and, and, and whether or not the people who voted for him um, are are necessarily racist. Um, uh, in, in, the, in the book, you, you seem to sort of um, set up racism as a, as a kind of a, of a red herring in a world where um, the division of global politics is such that it kind of are, are structurally such that it compels us to, to take shelter behind borders. I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, but, but is there maybe the ra maybe racism and the border are critical concepts in the text. What do you think? Uh, certainly the, the, the racism and the border are critical concepts. I mean, I, I do not think racism is a red herring. Okay. Um, and although, so I'd have a slightly deflationary view slightly though, not, not very deflationary view about, the significance of racism within uh, first world countries, let's say. Yeah. Uh, it, but I mean, for, to, what, I, what I argue in the book, I think pretty simply and in, so simply that it's not really Foucauldian is that racism is the generic ideology of imperialism. Right. And that you can't have one with it, without the other. Of course, Foucault has a lot to say about racism in, in society must be defended, which is the, the primary, you know, theoretically informing text, seminal text for, for, for this work I'm doing. Uh, but the, 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 yeah, the idea there is something like, you know, if you, if you're going to have this distinction between, which is, is germane to biopolitics between the valuable life that's inside your nation versus the life outside it, which you don't care about. Yeah. Uh, racism is, you know, the way to do that, right? You go, well, these other races are inferior. Yeah. And, and if anything, I think this, in some ways, this has been getting, this effect has been getting more pronounced uh, in recent years. I, or when I say recent years, I mean over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Because 
these, these days, it seems to me, and this is what I argue in the book, that the first world has been moving increasingly towards a form of political unity. Uh, from, of course, being incredibly fractured uh, in the early 20th century and continually fighting these wars, you know, the, the two world wars, which were largely fought between European or, or you know, European descended nations. Um, the, the situation now is one in which first world countries basically don't fight each other, but instead wage war against against poor and mostly brown people. And I mean, I think this this is, you know, Absolutely germane to what's happening in the United States racially, yeah. namely that that um, it, you know what's been happening uh, over the last sixteen years since September 11 in particular, but in fact, of course, it has a much longer history. Is the United States has been at war with brown uh, Muslims? Yes, and this you know can only. I mean, the, the way it's understood by the populace at large, I think, is in racial terms. And I think that's unavoidable. That's the only way you can have popular support for something like this. You say the United, the American population faces an existential threat from Islam and from non-white people outside of, of our body politic, uh, which justifies us going and killing them and even justifies us putting our own young men at risk because it's such a dire threat. This mm-hmm. is the kind of reading. And uh, the, uh, to, to my mind, it's it's going to be, un, you know, perhaps it's not literally unavoidable, but it's it's an obvious uh, corollary of that, that America becomes more racist, particularly against those groups. But then it's it's um, it's very hard to exempt other groups from this as well. I mean, this this and I. I of course, the, the main racial division in American society has always been the, the division between. Uh, people of African descent mm-hmm. and people of European descent. Yes. So, I mean, it's a, it's almost constitutive division um, of, of what America is. And um, it's, it's conceivable perhaps that that division could be put aside in favor of a new harsh division between, say, Christians and Muslims. Black people in the United States, since they're mostly Christian, could perhaps be rehabilitated. That that racism could could be lessened. But of course, this isn't what we we've seen. What we've seen is uh, is that that this this racial division of American society is um, just just utterly endemic, and and very little has really happened to ameliorate it. And mm. from this point of view, I think um, the election of, of Trump, say, can only be understood. It's only understandable. Mm-hmm. If you understand that America is a racist country, but I mean, here I want to downplay some of the the way this is talked about because right. the way people talk about it, it, particularly you know the the more kind of liberal Hillary boosting uh, left, want to talk as if Obama and Hillary were non-racist, and suddenly racism has re-emerged in the form of Trump. I mean, this yeah, this is wrong. exactly the the thing about Trump. It, Trump Trump is a racist. But he's not much more racist than than you know the average American. I mean, American politics society is is racist to the core. And you know, even someone like Barack Obama, who you know, at a superficial level, I think people kind of feel like, oh, he can't be racist because he he appears to be black, uh, mm. is just as racist as any other mainstream American politician. So. Um Obviously, we're talking um, the day after uh, um, 
what 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 is alleged to have been a major chemical weapons attack in Syria, and the the, the topic of Syria it, it comes up in in your in your book um, at some length, I think. Um, you argue uh, in the book that. Um, or you pose at least some guidelines, I think, for ways in which I, th I think that the Western subject, that's us, I suppose, can can express solidarity or even support resistance against this biopolitical imperialism. And um, you 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 sort of set up an argument that, that expresses support for moves in the West, for example, towards boycott and divestment in, 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 in sort of solidarity with the Palestinians. Um, but you've been less categorical in, in, this, in the same uh, passages about intervention in Syria. Um, what's going on there for you? And do you, I mean, obviously it's a very sort of, the new cycle isn't even 24 hours in yet, but, but how do you sort of feel about the debate that takes place around Syria today? I mean, look, there's, there's no more complicated question than Syria. I mean, and that's, that's, um, you know, one reason I kind of fought shine. I mean, of course, the book was really written, I guess, three years ago now. Though. Oh, God, well, so, like it, before Russia even intervened. So, I mean, obviously, obviously it's, yeah. Because it, it's been out for almost two years, but of course, it was right. written before that. So, sure, um, sure. And I, I, yeah, it means, I mean, I, I actually, yeah. It, I don't want to put you on the spot with that question. No, no, I'm no. Just, I, I'm, I'm really happy to answer it. I'm just, I'm just kind of struggling to answer it, but I'm happy to, to try to say something about it. But um, look, there's, there's a, a number of things. I mean, one, one obvious thing is, is to say that, that, you know, U.S. intervention in Syria follows the pattern of the strategy of, of biopolitical imperialism. Right. And that's that's what I do say in the book. Like, I'm pretty, mm -hmm. pretty clear about that. And of course, it's, you know, U.S. intervention in, in Syria is, um, you know, the latest installment in this. I mean, how, how long do we want to read it back? 20 years, 30 sure. years American intervention in the region. Um, and what I what I look, what I claim about the strategy of biopolitical imperialism is that it works by destroying these countries. Mm. And the, the important thing to, hear, hear, to grasp here about the Foucauldian notion of a strategy of power is the strategy of power works um, without any need for any of the people involved to understand it or mean it deliberately. It's a kind of opposite of a conspiracy theory. So mm. yes. the claim is that the way American power works in the Middle East is by doing things that generally aren't the explicit um, aims of American troops, policymakers, or anyone else, right? The 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 um, America's understanding of what it's doing. So it, it is you know, for example, oh, they think that you know Assad is a is a bad guy. They want to get rid of him. Perhaps uh, I mean, I think probably the the dominant understanding of Syria in in the American political establishment is is something more realist, let's say. It's, well, you know, we, if we get rid of Assad, we can have someone more sympathetic in power. Of course, the likely upshot of getting rid of Assad, although, you know, it's hard to, to predict exactly, would be that Syria would be a failed state. Um, and, I mean, it would. I, I imagine, really, if Assad were to lose in Syria, the most likely outcome would be something like the outcome in Afghanistan, that is... Yeah. Um, you'd have a failed state and eventually you'd have a dominant power who would be one of the most extreme right-wing factions would come to power. Well, 
Okay, but this this my claim is that this actually works very productively for the West because destroying states like Iraq and Syria is um, much more in their interest than having functioning anti-Western states, and that that really is the logic of what's what's happened in Syria, which is that uh, you know kind of oil has been poured on the fire of the Arab Spring in in Syria yeah. uh, to, to create the destruction of that country. Um, so that's that's my kind of overarching narrative, and I, I mean yeah. I could get much more into into the specifics. But. No, I mean it's it's uh, I, I I think that's a good answer. Um, you know I, I think it's uh, you know just as you were talking there, um, you know it, it it bears thinking about the 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 the, the lack of real solutions um, on the table here um, that uh, that that would sort of get us past an Assad governed Syria. It just, you know, the, 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 the globally, the willpower doesn't seem to be there. The Trump administration has already come out flatly said just in the last couple of days, uh, before the, uh, the, the, before, uh, the, the chemical weapons attack. But, um, you know, that, that, uh, removing Assad is no longer a, a priority for us foreign policy. So, um, Trump's pretty much said though, uh, I guess today, your time that, that, um, the, yeah weapons attack actually changes that oh he does <laughs> yeah well he said or well, he said it's changed it's made a great difference to his thinking about it like he hasn't quite said what the upshot is i mean it, it, this has really surprised me actually i'm, I'm kind of surprised uh, yeah. that the trump administration didn't follow the russian line on this and say um that you know they didn't that there was some doubt over who'd done the attack it's it's mm-hmm. yeah which i take it probably indicates there isn't much doubt over it but um mm-hmm. it's hard to it's hard to interpret uh, but I mean, here's here's where I mean, things get slightly complicated for me because um, clearly the general thrust of of what I'm saying is just to be opposed to to Western military intervention in any any context. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, that it, it, it's it's always imperialist in this sense, and that's that's unavoidable. And and that you know, de- therefore, I think you know, if if one wants to, um, I don't know what if if, if one is concerned with. The well-being of people in these regions, one would just totally oppose Western military intervention. Of course, Western military intervention, whatever camps is constructed around it, is not about the well-being of people in these regions. So, quite how that would work as a counterargument, I don't know. Yeah. But then this situation now in Syria, where the principal form of intervention is for the United States to be arming and assisting the SDF YPG, yeah. which is clearly, to my mind. You know, not not only like the the best of the warring factions in Syria, but probably the greatest hope, like or the most most hopeful political movement in the world. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm maybe going too far there, and God knows, I you know, I'm, I'm I know comfortable. Else. I'm quite comfortable with you saying that. So. Yeah. No, the Rojava project is is incredibly kind of inspirational and important. Uh, I, unfortunately, I I think it's very unlikely that this is going to end well, given yeah. that it's completely surrounded by enemies. But yeah. currently, America is on the side of this incredible kind of socialist political project against ISIS, which clearly um, is pretty much the worst political project in the world. <laughs> and uh, this, from that point of view, it's like you know, I, I certainly don't want to be saying, oh, you know, the Americans shouldn't be. And a, a number, of, quite a lot of people on the left. Um, seem to now have fallen one way or the other into the position of saying it's terrible that the Americans are, are involved with the YPG. Either you have these Trotskyists who are still um, 
aligned towards the the rebels incredibly the non-isis rebels who who think it's bad that america is intervening in this Gosh. way yeah and um i don't know if you're familiar with these people but like the yeah. iso and the and the various oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of the world and then of course you've got the kind of more marxist leninist type people anti-imperialists who are super pro assad mm-hmm. who view the the you know um ypg is pretty much just another bunch of anti-assad rebels we, i mean and of course their kind of proof of that is that the ypg are in bed with the americans so they must be pro-imperialists they have this like totally black and white view of things anyway it's an interesting uh, one, and I and I, I I have a funny feeling that this incident is going to escalate, uh, you know, quite a bit in the coming days. Um, uh, I, I I I wonder if it's going to trigger some kind of turning in U.S. foreign policy. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, particularly the way that the the, the Trump administration have been talking, which is to yeah. say, basically that that. Then, so their, their line now suddenly is that Obama should have gone in after the the initial chemical attacks, whenever that was, four or five years ago. Yeah, even though Trump at the time had tweeted, "Don't do that it." They weren't. No, that's right. And even though they were stopped from doing it by he, Obama was only stopped from doing that by Congress. Yeah, <laughs> by, by Republicans in Congress. Oh and dear. I take it that's right. Maybe it was by. I anyway, you're, no, you're right. You're- it was Congress that stopped it. I mean, of course, the Russians as well were very important, but Obama kind of wanted to go ahead with it. Yeah. And uh, the, the, I mean, and the other thing, of course, is is that I, I take it that those allegations of, I mean, I, I don't know quite where where we've landed on this, mm. but there was an incredible amount of doubt sown on on the allegations around those chemical attacks, like whether they were really done by by Assad or not. Yes. Um, yes. Famous journalists even. Um- you know, uh, d- did background research and tried to sort of claim there were there were different chemical signatures and different kind of thing like that. So um, we'll see if, um, it, it, what what comes out in the wash on this one. It, obviously, as as I said, it's it's early in the in the cycle. So, well, I think just one last question for you, uh, which I suppose is is a is a is a big question and a, and a big question for your book. Um, you seem to both. Um, call in the book for a complete sort of embargo against, uh, you know, Western intervention. But you also sort of argue that we should refuse the temptation to um, to sort of completely abolish the tools and methods of, of biopolitics. Um, in fact, you, having spent a whole book sort of tearing down the rationalities of biopolitics, you, you conclude by saying that what we really need here are more and different biopolitics. And I just wanted to ask you in the end, uh, what makes you so confident that a good biopolitics can be invented? Um, uh, just a, a quick quote here. You say biopolitics can only care for life. It does not give meaning to life. Um, yet surely before the very possibility of another biopolitics can come into being, it means we have to do precisely that, which is to give another meaning or at least democratize the meaning that we give to, to life. In this case, the, the, what I want to say is that the reason I, I kind of call for a, a new and different biopolitics is not because I am attached to biopolitics. Uh, right. It's because I think the horizon of biopolitics is is the one we're working in. 
So, uh, you know, it, it, it seems to me just that any any move out of the current situation will have to pass through mm-hmm. within the technology of biopolitics. It's, it's, it's hard to see a political movement um, from the left, if you like, which doesn't use the, an appeal to life making people live. Uh, we certainly, I think, and going back to this discussion of neoliberalism, yes. on the neoliberal side, I mean, the threat to biopolitics comes from the right and from neoliberalism. And there's a genuine threat. You see this, I mean, it, it's a, this, this is a kind of phantasmic threat, but you see the, the phantom uh, with the kind of far-right, libertarian far-right sentiment in the U.S., um, with kind of you know a narco capitalist kind of pe- people who just want to you know completely get rid of any any public subsidy for anything, get rid of welfare, get rid of healthcare. Sure. And and this is genuinely the kind of the asymptote to which neoliberalism seems to trend towards the abolition of the welfare state, and that that's a genuine threat to biopolitics and to the lives of millions of people. Like literally, people will die in their millions if this ever happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I take it that. The obvious, uh, you know, point of resistance passes through saying, "Well, look, you know, this imperialism, this neoliberalism is killing people," and uh, to to oppose that. That said, you know, I, I mean, I can't predict the future. I don't know. Sure. And ultimately, from a kind of Foucauldian perspective, I would expect something that isn't biopolitics to come along as well. So it's not like I think biopolitics is, is the kind of end of history, final horizon of all thoughts. And, you know, I may just be wrong. Maybe the next big thing will not be biopolitical. But um, it's, it seems to me that that's the game that's that's in play at the present. Uh, there's a little bit of residual Marxist in me that uh, that that wants to think of biopolitics in instrumental terms and, you know, that it's, uh, you know, that, that, you know, it's, it's not the state. That's the problem. It's the content of the governmentality or, you know, this kind of, uh, way of thinking. But, um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, from that, but that, from that point of view, I think, I mean, if you, if you, if you think it's not the state, but the governmentality, then, then I think you're, you're still within biopolitics. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Because biopolitics isn't a governmentality, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's something smaller than that. If you want to, I mean, if you, if your idea is to have a state that you know is going to redistribute, is going to genuinely look after the workers and not the bourgeoisie, I mean, mm-hmm. then if you're going to have a Marxist state, then then you still have to be on board with biopolitics. I mean, the point at which you can part company with biopolitics, I guess, is if you're going to go further if you're a you know really libertarian communist or an anarchist and you want to say well let's just get rid of the whole state then perhaps we're going to then the instrumentality of biopolitics perhaps comes into question yeah um and um i, I know you've got specific views on the um interchangeability of of uh, governmentality and biopolitics or or uh, you know whether whether those two terms have been um used appropriately in in the literature uh but perhaps that is a question for another day um Mark Kelly, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you for being my second ever guest. Great. Thanks, Nick. It's an honor. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.